Hi, I'm Lexi NK, and this is Swampside Chats, the podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. Today, we are joined by our Emancipation Network comrades, Shane Kilkelly and Kyle Thompson of General Intellect Unit to help us through our first double not one step back request, the 1973 lecture series, Designing Freedom by British cybernetician Stafford Beer. Not one step back. All right, we are joined by the uh, GI unit. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Shane and Kyle Ayo. from uh, hey. General Intellect Unit. Mm-hmm. Nice mm-hmm. to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, welcome, Emancipation Network comrade. Woo! Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. It's finally coming together, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Totally. So we're talking like what's kind of like the main thing of your show, cybernetics. Specifically, the work of Stafford Beer. We read uh, Designing Freedom, mm-hmm. which is basically a text of six radio broadcasts that were broadcast in 1973 uh, to the CBC. Yeah. Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Yep. Uh, some of us listened to the audio, some of us read the thing. So, like, most of my kind of thinking about cybernetics comes via Paul Cogshot, who alludes to this guy's work briefly in, like, Towards New Socialism. Mm-hmm. But I haven't really, like, mm-hmm. gone into, like, cybernetics itself. Or any okay. of the literature surrounding it directly. So this is kind of like my first encounter with it. Mm, right. So cybernetics is, it, a lot of people think it's about cool robots and shit, which it kind of is a lot later on. But you have this guy, Norbert Wiener, working for, I don't know, fucking US defense or whatever. And he's looking into like how to make kind of self-targeting, like automatically targeting systems and this sort of stuff. And he, he sort of uses this word from Greek, right? Kybernetes or Kubernetes, which means steersman. And he sort of thinks of cybernetics as the science of steersmanship. So he's kind of concerned with complex systems specifically, which steer themselves in some way. And this is usually achieved through feedback, right? So the steersman on the ocean evaluates the scene, makes some adjustments, and then reevaluates, makes some adjustments, reevaluates. And that's how navigation works. The same is broadly true for. Uh, things like automatic targeting systems, right? Like you evaluate where the target is, you evaluate where you are, you make an adjustment and all these kind of things, and then prediction and all this sort of stuff comes into it. So that's got the basics of cybernetics, right? But then later on, you get all these kind of other weirdos come into the, the fray, like Ross Ashby, you know, who's a psychiatrist, and he's he's concerned with brains, right? And adaptive brains and how they navigate their environments. Um, and then Beer comes along and he's he's kind of... He's, he's quite inspired by both Ashby and, and Wiener and a lot of the other kind of guys. Um, and Beer is sort of concerned with figuring out how organizations, like social systems and individuals, right? All of those are complex systems, right? Individual humans are complex systems. Organizations of humans are complex systems and up and up through the layers. How the hell do they adapt? All of them, right? Institutions, individuals, groups, companies, economies, all this kind of stuff. How do they adapt? How do they navigate their environments? That's the kind of problem statement here. Beer is writing this kind of stuff like pretty much immediately after his experience in Chile, right? Where the Allende government invited him to implement these kinds of ideas, the ideas that we'll talk about in the episode, at a national scale. And then they got Pinochet, <laughs> right? Right. Pinochet as a verb. It's immediately in the wake of that that he's writing this. So that's kind of anchor context. Not to jump ahead, but you see it in the end, too. Yeah, yeah totally. It comes back around to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like this kind of tension between like sort of pessimism and optimism in it. Mm-hmm. He gets very frank to the end about how, you know, this whole thing was kind of like strangled in the cradle by, yeah, basically America. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah. And what's interesting is that he talks about how, you know, like, it's like the science of like understanding organizations and stuff like that and organizing them more efficiently. It's tough to say, like, how much of this is about... Like, society is a totality, and how much of it is about, like, particular organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, he seems to think it could scale up both ways. But he, he has this extremely profound pessimism about, like, the nature of, like, organizations, like, in modern society. He almost seems to suggest, like, there's some kind of, like, imminent crisis. Like, institutions are about to, like, collapse or something. Mm-hmm. As a result of their own, like, in- intrinsic, like, inefficiencies and inability to, like, reproduce themselves over the long term. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's one of his like central modeling points. And it's pretty cool because he has like good intuitions 
for why organizations are like this before the social context, you might say. Like he has a sort of abstract model, Mm -hmm. maybe in real life. That's not before social context, but in a sort of analytic sense it is. And he gives you a really good way of understanding what you might call organizational drift, where an organization becomes primarily focused on perpetuating itself or an institution rather than whatever, you know, flags it has draped over it, what it's themed Mm -hmm. throughout the whole analysis hovering in the background is the attempt to not just respond to capitalism, but of course, to respond to the ultimate uh, not very dynamic, not very viable uh, alternative in Stalinism. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Especially because, like, um, the Allende government and their sort of thing was in so many ways and ex- explicitly going against the grain of Stalinism, right? Like, um, there was a reason that beer was brought in on the ground floor there, right? That, like, his ways mm-hmm. of thinking about organizations and the ways of thinking about viable societies had that kind of resonance with this ground-up sort of attempt to build a sort of democratic and viable kind of alternative to both the tyranny of capital and the tyranny of Stalinism, right? Yeah. And there's a sort of (laughs) attempt. But but there's a memory hole about this because the new people that are kind of latching onto dialectical materialism point to cybernetics and say, see, we were right all along. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain like Marxian sense in which the stuff that Marx was reaching for by turning Hegel on his head and looking towards a sort of holistic functionalism, you know, in social analysis, like that stuff is basically the bread and butter of cybernetics and in the looser materialist dialectics of Marx, but maybe not Engels, mm-hmm. arguably, like to a degree, cybernetics is the fruition of this project, right? However, Mm -hmm. the body of thought called dialectical materialism, when cybernetics emerges, uh, the Stalinist bureaucracy is quite hostile to it. It It's something of a bourgeois deviation. I Mm -hmm. guess there was a heterogeneous response, but like... The upper levels of the party were very enthusiastic about it. They thought it was great. It was like the mid-levels that didn't want to implement it, and they're the ones who basically saw it was done, but in like the shittiest possible way. That's characteristic of like the Khrushchev period, but the initial contact with it, there was a hostile reaction when the sort of high Stalinist period was kind of lingering on. Uh, there was that kind of like diamat mm-hmm. hostility towards it and viewing it as like a, a foreign science that shouldn't be trusted. And then there was very quickly in the Khrushchev period, a dramatic turn towards the leadership supporting it. And yeah, that opposition coming from the middle ranks. What a tragedy when we actually see the birth of essentially what probably should be the foundation of dialectical materialism, if you really want to call it that. Like it's a sort of systems thinking. It has the functional attitude. It has this process ontology Mm -hmm. and an integrated epistemology. I mean, it's pretty much on the money of where Marx was going by trying to flip Hegel. And, you know, the body of thought called Marxism and dialectical materialism attacks it viciously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, um, which, which beer hasn't count for here, really, that like that's, that's what institutions yeah. do. It's what a particular kind of cancerous bureaucracy does, is it reacts viciously to any threat to its own existence and ignores its, its initial imperatives, which was to, you know, improve the lives of people and so on. Yeah, there's also sort of like an underlying difference between like the cybernetics that was developed in the Soviet Union and the cybernetics that's developed by Stafford Beer in terms of like how they operate. Generally, Beer views Soviet cybernetics as like too top down, whereas like his cybernetics is not really decentralized per se because he goes on in this essay to talk about how that's sort of a false dichotomy to a certain extent, but Mm -hmm. it's more balanced. There's a thorough balance going on. Yeah, so, like, I mean, Stafford has this, like, basic sort of commitment to human liberation, the need for autonomy and stuff, but what makes him kind of unique is that he's able to back that up with math, right? That, like, it's not just a moral imperative, it's also an imperative for, like, the maximal ability of a society to solve its own problems. 
So in very short terms, what he's talking about there is that there's this kind of problem in cybernetics where if you intend to manage something or to regulate something, the sort of variety of the regulator needs to be approximately equal to the variety of the problem at hand. But that's kind of intractable, right? Like ultimately, right? Because each system you try to regulate is ultimately kind of unknowably complex. So you have to get kind of clever in how you deal with it. But ultimately, the conclusion that he is led to is that you have to allow for maximal autonomy. That if a system has a problem, the best way to solve it is for it to solve it itself, like devolve power lower and lower through the ranks, because like it's the workers and the people involved in the processes of production in society and all those kind of things. The people closest to the source of the problem, the closest to the coalface, are actually the best qualified to sort it out. So he's very much like opposed to top-down control. In fact, for him, kind of ontologically, top-down control is impossible because the centralized bureaucracy will never have enough variety to adequately manage the situation. The situation has to manage itself bottom-up. That's basically like an ontological truth for him. It's not even a moral imperative. But he seems to recognize that it needs to be like coordination at like higher yeah. levels yeah. within the system. And that you could see, for instance, there are things where it's like, I don't think the people who just happen to be living near a natural resource should decide exactly how that natural resource is mm -hmm. distributed simply because they're the ones working to extract it. You know what I mean? You yeah. can see how that could go bad very quickly in an like, integrated world system. Mm -hmm. It's neither centralized nor decentralized. Like he, he casts that as being an odd way of thinking about things because actual complex systems, when you really analyze them, like, say, the human body or, or any other sort of examples in the world, they all operate on this kind of mixed mode of like some central components and some decentralized components. And then if you step into one of the decentralized components, it also has that same structure of being partially central and partially decentral. Mm -hmm. The phrase I think that is used is autonomy and cohesion, right? So it's maximal practical autonomy and enough cohesion and enough coordination where it's required to actually aggregate systems into larger systems and to to balance things out right i mean looking at stuff like this it really makes me think like how childish so much of like especially at least in the united states like the modern left's oh, mm, yeah. notions of organization are in a lot of places oh, like yeah having dealt with like anarchists and stuff like that in a number of contexts like they seem to almost take it to the point where they just hate organization mm -hmm. period pretty much right like um, explicitly they're completely allergic to anything that isn't completely decentralized mm -hmm. usually in such a way that they can like run their little like activist fiefdom yeah in Stafford's language, a totally distributed or decentralized system would be like an amoeba. Like it wouldn't have any coordination and so it wouldn't be able to act in aggregate. Like it would just be a sort of collection of molecules bouncing off each other in the void. That's a good metaphor. Yeah, right. But then a, something that was completely coordinated would be rigid. Like it would be like a block of wood as opposed to a gas, right? Like it would be just kind of unable to actually change. And so you have to have this kind of mixed mode of like... Systems and subsystems being able to dynamically react to problems and reconfigure, but also being able to coordinate in this kind of bizarre waltz, right? Like a four-dimensional waltz that goes through time amongst these these complex systems. It puts a lot of the anarchist stuff to shame, really, because like what's fascinating here is that like Beer arrives at probably the most practical description of like a federal municipal anarchism that you will ever get, but he does it without touching the anarchist tradition at all. You have to go on a huge detour outside of anarchism to arrive back at something that's actually a practical anarchism, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes we say that Marxism is a sort of post-anarchism. Mm -hmm. If you're truly serious about getting rid of the state as we understand it to be, then you would have to start taking a lot of Marxist ideas seriously, even if you never thought of yourself as that. And notably, this book yeah. basically isn't really arguing within the socialist tradition either. You know what I mean? He's right. making a national appeal to a, you know, yeah. a national broadcasting corporation. Yeah, it's important to note that Beer's involvement in Project CyberSyn was a major turning point in his thinking and his life. Uh, because prior to that, he was much more of a industrial consultant... Like, he came out of an operations research background and went into consulting, dabbled in cybernetic experimentation and research, but he didn't really have a social orientation or any kind of, like, sociological orientation in his work. And working on CyberSyn mm -hmm. very much changed his perspective. So he does bring with him his sort of past about, you know, he has kind of essentialist 
views of human nature, I would say. <laughs> the human seeking for freedom. He has certain sort of almost like Rousseauian thoughts about like what people used to be like. <laughs> and he does definitely have a liberal universalist outlook. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's been heavily colored by his engagement in the revolutionary process in Chile. It's a very much a transitionary moment for him. Yeah, I mean, that's as much a product of his engagement with the Chilean experiment, because while Chilean experiment was a socialist experiment, it was also done in a social democratic national electoral context. Mm -hmm. Chile basically did everything according to sort of like the bourgeois yeah. ideology and press the way that you're supposed <laughs> to do it. Yep. You know, totally. Except for some nationalizations, but even that's pretty normal for state capitalism. That used to be on the table. And he still got completely fucked, you know? <laughs> yep. And with the nationalizations, he always, like, paid the corporations back. That's the thing. Like, he always paid them back. Mm -hmm. It was more like the state buying the organization rather than just seizing it. And even then, that still managed to, like, peeve people off. And, I mean, this is one of the reasons why the Chilean Revolution marks such a, a watershed moment in the degeneration of that Keynesian consensus perspective on capitalism uh, after the war, right? Because they kind of did everything by accepted international norms, at least within the core, and the reaction was incredibly brutal. So, and then it became an enormous uh, laboratory for neoliberal violence. This is one of the places that I, I think there's a lot to draw from beer for socialism that sort of recognizes itself as socialism. But he states pretty plainly in the third lecture, for example, that cybernetics can be a tool to improve existing governments in terms of their policy efficiency. And in the last lecture, you know, he says a revolutionary would be scared by what I'm saying. He's talking about government transforming its own institutions willingly in terms of their strength in managing society. And so... That, I think, connects a bit with some of the limits of Chile that we're talking about. And in a sense, it seems he's trying to solve for the irrationality of decision-making being deferred to politics and the political class without solving for the state machinery itself. But one demands the other, mm -hmm. you know? In those final lectures, I mean, he comes around to the point that, like, you, you'll be faced with these kind of bureaucracies that are so ossified, not just bureaucracies, but like, you know, the system of capital itself that is, is so rigid and ossified and resistant to change that you're just going to have to fucking obliterate it. Some of these things won't be able to reform. He does come around to that. He mm. has this very ambivalent sense about how much do you work within existing institutions. And I, I will credit him with that, that he's definitely not only saying things on the side that I'm talking about. But it just seems like within the existing state machinery, something like Cybersyn would end up as a panopticon, just like algorithms could be useful in socialism. But if you had the Amazon algorithm that everybody thinks is reading their thoughts running things, that you know, would, would be bad. So rather than Cybersyn, I, I think at his best, Beer is imagining a central hub of workers administrating their own freedom in production. Yeah, he's also imagining that, like, states will basically fund more or less autonomous decision-making bodies that will undermine them, that have basically the mission to undermine them. So this would be some kind of... There's something Lasallian about that, isn't there? Well, I, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> as a matter of basic socialist strategy, there's a Lasallian hope. And it's also blended with a sort of autonomous vibe. It reminds me of the sort of synthesis that Eric Olin Wright ends up with, but more antagonistic, more actually like the state will fund something that seeks to undermine the state, basically. He'll even say stuff like, oh, it doesn't matter how much government intervention in an economy, all governments intervene so cybernetics could be useful to them. And then on the other hand, then he'll say the entire edifice of civilization needs to go. <laughs> yeah there's also like sort of a decolonial vibe going on especially with the way he talks yeah. about like resources and sort of ecology in general it's like the core cannot continue to upping its quote-unquote living standards at the expense of the poor rest of the world essentially right. is what he argues in like lecture five this is published in like 1973 so i got to see him being more sanguine about the capacity of institutions for reform because there was a much bigger level of like political and social upheaval going on in that period i mean it, in the united states maybe it crested a little bit in the late 60s but there's still maybe more cause for optimism as far as i understand like 
73 is the year where all that stuff goes to die in the States. This is really like the tail end of the 68 to 73 period of revolutionary foment in American institutions. But I mean, the size of like Marxist groups, even if they're like MLMs or Maoists, like what do we have today? We have like the DSA is like the largest one. And even we don't really know how many active members really exist within it. But there were like Maoist organizations back then that dwarfed the contemporary DSA. So I would say even in 73, while, you know, maybe the scene died and Altamont killed Woodstock or whatever, like I feel like even then there was still more cause for optimism, maybe in terms of some kind of like reform on the, you know, I mean, this is the era of Nixon when he literally created the EPA and fucking all that other stuff that is almost inconceivable today. So I studied a lot about information society theory for my, my master's thesis and the sort of tone you get of like state institution insiders being highly critical of the state, but being unable to separate themselves from their institutional basis. I guess there's like a double think that happens. You see it a lot in information society theory of this time. And I think you're seeing kind of a similar thing in beer because although beer has never really been a state guy, he was mostly excluded from the state in the UK. He never really had like strong university ties anything like that. He was like an industry consultant and he was like very much an insider before he went to Chile. Then his life kind of took a different path. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a sense in which he's still stuck looking at it through the eyes of the apparatus, even though he wants to solve a lot of the same problems yeah. that you know somebody like Marx is bringing up. Because it seems like the limits of cybernetics would be the limits of your productive mode. I mean, if you're not addressing wage, labor, money, the state, then you haven't addressed the shape of the room, even if you push the furniture around differently inside of it. Yeah, at least for me, like I think it's true for our project at General Intellect Unit. I think theory and cybernetics is one half of the equation, right? And the other half is Marxism, that they're extremely resonant. Like and there's, a, there's a lot that's kind of shared between them. And there's I think there's lessons that can be learned across the sort of things. But then you, we have this problem, like Beer is kind of a naive guy in some ways, right? And like It's because I think like he was this consultant, he was kind of an insider for, for that sort of stuff for so long. And he came around to this kind of sociological mode of thinking, to thinking about the kind of problems of world capitalism quite late. And I, I would be fascinated to see like an alternate universe in which Beer picks up Marx a lot earlier. He'd have been broke, basically. Yeah. Like, he wouldn't have had that cush yeah. consulting job. <laughs> yeah, right. He would have yeah, been a loser yeah. like us. <laughs> Pretty much, right? That's the problem, right? Exactly. So I think it has to be a fusion, right? Like, I don't think Beer is going to be a silver bullet for, for anything, but I think the project of cybernetic Marxism or whatever is one that sort of only began with Chile, really, and got fucking strangled in the cradle, as we've said, right? Pretty much immediately. Yeah, and they're engaging with Marx and trying to create like cybernetic diagrams mm -hmm. to formalize uh, the sort of stuff that Marx is talking about in like sort of simple reproduction in volume one, that kind of thing. So like he is starting to like think about the class relation, mm. all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's like early days. He, um, it never becomes the core of his belief. No, he has that cool diagram, I think from a paper that came a little bit after this, but like the cool diagram where he's showing like the class war as a homeostatic balance where the balance is predicated on one group being disorganized and the other being highly organized. Mm. He's putting the class war in these kind of like organizational cybernetic terms as like, oh, the only reason this loop can keep going around and around is because one half of the equation is hyper organized and the other one is completely disorganized. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like his little New Yorker cartoons too <laughs> that you get like at the end of these lectures. Like They're very cool. <laughs> yeah. Where yeah. was that from? That sounds interesting to me. I think you can find it both in cybernetic revolutionaries and also in the cybernetic brain. Okay. okay. Yeah, so you all have studied this stuff much more deeply than I have, but just coming looking at it, it seems like the main purchase of this sort of thing is two things. How do you manage an advanced industrial society with billions if not trillions of people in a way that doesn't foster like immense alienation right there's always gonna be some level of alienation in society due to the mediation that exists in something this big and technically complex but how do you minimize that and sort of maximize human freedom right that's one question the other thing is though how can you create organizations that are effective in the way that they interact with the world <laughs> which is like the major challenge of like the contemporary left today right like nobody really seems to know how to do it yeah. it always seems to oscillate wildly between doing something that doesn't really have any effect on the outside world but is internally functional or consistent or self-perpetuating or being something that is 100% outward focused but has no agency with which to act on the outside world or some combination of the two right 
So it seems like this kind of thinking about organizational structures and how the metabolism of the organization <laughs> can sort of take in feedback from the outside world and create, I guess you could say, like sort of like that dialectical feedback. That seems to be another thing that could be useful from this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like for beer, that, that's what is his concept of viability, right? Like you have a system, like whether it's a person or an organization or firm, a party, whatever you want to call it, just a system, right? Mm -hmm. Then separately, you have everything that's not the system. You call that the environment, right? And how does that system navigate its environment? And particularly, how does it adapt over time to new threats, or to new signals arriving from the environment. Because like a system can come to balance with its particular current you know, situation and fail to adapt to the next thing that comes down the pipe. For beer, a viable system is a system that can get itself into a place where it is able to self-alter. It is able to update itself in real time and reorganize itself in real time to meet new threats. Kind of like how an octopus moves, right? It's all this kind of slippy, slimy kind of, you know, yeah. mutational kind of thing through time. And that's that's really what he's concerned with, right? It's, it's something I think is immensely valuable to the left, because I mean, like, <laughs> how many fucking trot sects are there out there who are simply not viable in the least fucking bit, you know, or... Or anything, I mean... Yeah, they're nothing, right? They're not even concerned with viability. They're not even concerned with the fundamental questions that Beer asks, like, what is the purpose of the system? How does it intend to carry out its purpose? And how does it intend to alter itself in order to carry out the purpose if right. situations change? None of that shit's on the fucking table for so many, so many organizations. None of it. Like, it's it's crazy. Well, leftism supports the system of doing coke with grad students in Brooklyn pretty well. <laughs> That's where uh, Beer's purpose of a system is what it does principle uh, comes in there, right? Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it serves a class process or what have you. Like, but, uh... <laughs> that level is interesting, like, thinking about, like, what the functionality of things, like, how, how they plug in. That plugs into a lot of, like, historical materialist stuff already. And so this makes me start thinking about the debates around the Third International and how that whole <laughs> political spectrum from left to right was an attempt, because it was sort of foreclosed by Bolshevization, but it was an attempt to talk about what the form of proletarian organization is. All the way on the left, you mm -hmm. had, you know, councils and a sort of like emphasis on a particular form of direct democracy. You had virtually every answer under the sun, <laughs> like <laughs> within that. I guess the centrist answer, right, was to maintain like the status quo of what had been established and to draw on some mm -hmm. other literature it was a way of like strengthening almost every other kind of power distinction against markets mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. and every other like accumulated class distinction of history would be set as like an alternative to organizing around markets <laughs> within Stalinism. Right. right. And I guess the right wing was, well, fuck it. We'll just do like capitalism, I guess. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's basically dingism, right? As it ended up emerging. Well, because, you know, maybe the center is less free and less efficient at the same time. Yeah. This idea of dynamic and viable systems gives one a more precise language to talk about what Deleuze would call rhizomatic, you know, which basically means like market-like. <laughs> or, or, or like there's that whole Ticton tradition of looking at the Soviet Union as something that can't reproduce itself. There's a sort of Hegelian read of that from Chris Arthur that calls the Soviet Union like a non-mode of production mm -hmm. because of the way it was sort of destined to kind of collapse into something else. Yeah. This gives us a way of grappling with that stuff that's a lot more tangible. I thought non-mode of production specifically referred to the way in which like the Soviet Union wasn't solely one mode of production at a time. You would have war communism, which doesn't have functioning markets. Then you would have, like, early NEP stuff. Then you would have Stalinization that would go back to not having functioning markets. Then you have Khrushchev era, and then Brezhnev, and then basically long periods of time in which there were still not functioning markets, and then markets are reintroduced under Gorbachev. Throughout that period of unofficial markets, you have an economy that relies so heavily on grift and black markets below the surface mm -hmm. as well. That's an interesting thing to bring up, right? Because like, if Beer was with us and still able to analyze that kind of stuff, he would immediately jump on how, in reaction to the crisis of the establishment of the Soviet Union, right, like the kind of civil war and stuff, you get this like um, kind of tight butthole sort of bureaucracy kind of emerges that like desperately tries to... Air horn. <laughs> tries to... We're going to have to insert that, right? But like desperately tries to kind of... Um, 
clench so as to gain control over the system. And like in Beer's sort of estimation, that is really problematic because that kind of centralized bureaucracy that's like brutally trying to cull variety in its problem system is kind of destined to fail anyway because it's unable to map the variousness of the society. And so, yeah, the society is filled with grift and hidden corners where things aren't surfaced properly and all this kind of thing. And I think Beer would diagnose that as actually a major part of the problem, that you had the central bureaucracy that had the impression of itself that it was total, and yet is kind of ontologically incapable of totalizing and is unstable because of that. Yeah, that was always like my main criticism of like the USSR as totalitarian because it kind of like basically buys into the propaganda of the regime. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, right. Like these societies were so dysfunctional. I think you can say that about North Korea now. It's like, (laughs) okay, maybe if you're in the party in Pyongyang, it's like this big brother, Mm -hmm. like Orwellian thing. But I imagine if you're like a peasant in the countryside, it's just, you know, maybe somebody comes and takes some of your grain once in a while. But for the most part, yeah, the state's like absent out of your life you know i think that tightened butthole even the extent to which they were able to be quote-unquote totalitarian depended very much on the death of a large quantity of proletarians in the civil war and the fact that the social base that was being ruled over was no longer proletarian in a way that actually affected the government i mean if you didn't have all of the proles die in the civil war i think you would have gotten more in the vein of Ronstadt or something, but maybe not in the same political particulars. But more resistance, basically, from the working class, Yes, if there had been a working class left. Well, Stalin deliberately, like, packed the party with, like, basically up-jumped peasants who were loyal to him personally for their position in the party. And anytime anybody kind of began to develop some kind of independent power base, they were killed. That was Stalin method of management, you know? Right. So. Yeah. Shoot the cat. I think in terms of, like, Beer's analysis of the USSR, like, I haven't read anything in too much detail, but it really strikes me that we just have a lot more nuanced understanding of, like, stages of, like, reform attempts and the reversals and the ways, like, the bureaucracy actually operated that just weren't really accessible to people in 73 because a lot of it was this kind of weird dialectic between America and the USSR where they kind of, like, bought a little bit of each other's self-image more than was justified. Mm-hmm. Right, even the CIA would consistently tell the United States government that Soviet production figures were above what they were, in truth, because even our intelligence agencies bought some of their propaganda about how successfully totalitarian they were. Yeah, that's the thing about totalitarianism. It's not actually like a viable system. Like German fascism, if you imagine that fascism wins World War II, like, how does that settle down? It seems to rely on a war economy. Yeah, exactly. go for broke or bust. I feel like actually it maybe could have worked if they'd killed enough people because wasn't their plan to basically wipe out Eastern Europe and then resettle that land mm. and basically enslave the remnants of the population? Yeah. like Living like, space. I forget the German word for it. Lebensraum. It's almost like the Thanos thing, like the way that things were nice for like medieval peasants after the plague, right? They wanted to fulfill the Jeffersonian dream, you know? Right, exactly. That's why in some ways, when I'm in my more optimistic mindset, I do feel like we're almost in kind of like the late Soviet era, but in the West, because (laughs) you get the sense that there's like this deep institutional dysfunction. But because the institution is all that there is, it can just kind of float things downstream a little bit longer and kick the can down the road, right? But the problem with that is, is that you're aggregating the problems till it's like a civilization-wide crisis, as opposed to being a crisis of this or that particular institution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much, right? That's what Beer is like. He opens the whole affair here with that kind of assessment that it seems like our institutions are in free fall. It seems that, you know, things are getting more and more unstable and the process is accelerating, right? And he sort of brings it down to this thing of like, we've discovered cybernetics as the science of effective organization, but our present organizations and institutions are from a pre-scientific era. I make the analogy to pre-scientific bridge building, right? Like where before physics was discovered, I mean, you could build a bridge, right? Like you just put a bunch of fucking stones on top of each other and it would kind of work. Except you could only do it on the fly. Like every new bridge you would build would just be, we'll try a thing and if it falls down, we're kind of fucked. So we're going to have to stick to the old (laughs) blueprint, right? And you couldn't try things out on paper ahead of time and you especially couldn't optimize anything. But then physics comes along and math, right? And you're able to like, oh shit, we can figure out bridges on paper before we make them real. And that's a huge phase shift. 
The same is true for like the science of organization, right? That this heregoing analysis of how organizations work, that everything we have is pre-scientific, like in that regard. These are old forms of organization that date from feudal times up through the last couple hundred years. They're not capable of keeping up with the complexity of the modern world. So what they do is they just kind of shut down and sort of... Protect themselves. Protect themselves, right? But he says that, like, these organizations, they react to hyper-complexity and to these problems by either, like, installing more bosses, like, becoming authoritarian, essentially, restricting themselves, like, installing straitjackets on themselves, essentially, to, like, limit the variation, like, limit the shake and the vibrations, or they shoot the cat, right? Like, you know, the cat that is there batting at the little ball or whatever in the diagram, they just shoot the fucking cat. And that's your kind of classic organizational reaction of just brutality and narrowness as the way of dealing with things. And what he's proposing is that we can have a different modernity that is built on scientific kinds of organization which maximize human freedom and maximize the effectiveness of those organizations by doing clever organizational engineering instead of shooting the cat and instead of installing more bosses. Yeah, this strikes a sort of middle ground that has a kind of, I don't know, Marxian Hegelian sort of logic by short-circuiting old debates or stalled dialectics Mm -hmm. and working towards like a sort of synthetic option, like the case with, you know, decentralization versus centralization. And in particular, I think this is a really good scientific approach, as I think Rosa was pointing towards, for anti-imperialism and decolonization because of his emphasis on variety. And anyone that takes a glance at cultural anthropology knows how important the concept of variety is <laughs> and the ability to like handle variety within like a great level of human creativity and different ways of organization and, you know, integrating these things in a way that allows people to have a modern standard of living if they want. That's a significant challenge. And beer gives you a sort of like scientific framework for not eliminating cultural difference, not eliminating variety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what I would emphasize is that what we see in designing freedom is sort of the general abstract perspective on Beer's work. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you go listen to our episode on the viable system model, you'll see a lot more of the nitty gritty details of how Beer thinks and like how you can think about organizations Mm -hmm. practically in terms of reorganizing them towards uh, freedom and viability. Yeah. Because it might not be quite clear the extent to which this comes out of a lot of practical experience Mm -hmm. and is not so much an abstract theory about organization and human freedom exclusively. Mm. Yeah. I mean, like, so this is probably worth clarifying for the listeners, right? That, like, Designing Freedom is about 100 pages. It was delivered as a set of lectures intended for public consumption. Beer also wrote a lot of books, and they're fucking huge. Brain of the Firm is 600 pages, Heart of the Enterprise is 600 pages. In this format, where he's speaking for a public audience, he's really dumbing things down, and like kind of dumbing them down to the point where it almost damages the argument. It also leaves these tantalizing things of like, oh, I'd like to hear more about that. Tell me more. Yeah. He does work this out very rigorously as well. Like He shows his homework in his actual main writing. Like He very much does that. If anyone reads this and is like, oh, it, this didn't make sense, or I'm wondering how this could possibly be the case like there's thousands and thousands of pages of shit this guy wrote that is is very readable but it is long and kind of like it's not super accessible but a, a hundred page book like design and freedom is very accessible yeah i did get the sense reading this that it was just kind of like scratching the surface yeah although oh, yeah, i yeah. did appreciate how it was structured he kind of brings the chile thing and the waves thing around at the end it's very stirring actually mm-hmm. yeah he's a good writer yeah Yeah, it's quite poetic. But this was definitely probably the only Stafford Beer book that our Bonapartist patrons, not one step back, Mm. could reasonably throw down on this episode. That's probably the most reasonable thing that we could have done here. It's still worth a read, absolutely. Also, get it for free online. Yeah, and uh, now is that his voice giving the lecture? Yeah. Because, yeah, especially when he's talking about uh, Chile. You hear it. Mm-hmm. I was surprised at how good his voice was. I was expecting it to be like, you know, you with all these guys, you expect them to have just awful voices. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, damn, like, it sounds like Alan Moore, or like some kind of actor or something. Yep. <laughs> and he was a suave kind of guy. You know, he was a very good writer, very good at selling his ideas. The important thing to remember is, like, he really did not come out of academia. 
Yeah, yeah. His operations research background came out of the military. Mm-hmm. It wasn't out of academia. And he was always peripheral to academia. So mm-hmm. he's a rather different character than you might expect from somebody who's doing cybernetics work. Yeah. Well, even the name, like, Designing Freedom, it sounds like it would be the title to, like, a promotional newsreel from the 50s from, like, the Ford Motor Company. <laughs> totally. you know? Designing Freedom. Train travel to the average American white man. You know, like, yep. <laughs> yeah, there's sort of a utopian edge to it that you probably wouldn't find in, say, like, normal academic version of a writing like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this gets into the distinction that you talked about on your episodes about the cybernetic brain, the Andrew Pickering book, where talked yep. about, um, what was it, American cybernetics, which was all company man shit. That was, mm-hmm. you know, capital and state uber Alice, whereas the British variety was a little more in opposition, a little less institutionally supported and therefore less institutionally in the pocket. Yeah, yeah, it was a bunch of strange fail sons and just assorted weirdos, basically. Right. The engine of intellectual history. Yep. The standard Marxist Yeah, set. like carrying on the <laughs> exactly yeah. the proud yeah. tradition of Marx. I'm with Jake, though. I would love to cast <laughs> this guy oh, yeah. Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> he, he could be a really good actor. <laughs> he should be like Picard's dad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're doing a new series. I get to know he's dead, though, damn it. Like, yeah. He would have played Picard's dad really well, I think. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could see it. I could see it. <laughs> How long did he live for? Because he lived off a diet of alcohol and chocolate. Pretty much, right. Continually. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? That was one of the remarks that, that you get from cybernetic revolutionaries, that, like, um, when he shows up in Chile, like, he's just subsisting on a diet of cigars, whiskey, and chocolate. <laughs> and, like, um, I think one of the remarks from... The, the remark from one of the, like, people who ended up working deeply in Cybersyn was, like, this is one strange gringo. <laughs> that's, a, that's, like, a direct yeah. vote. Someone should do, like, a viable systems model of his digestive system and, like, the shit he's putting in there and how somehow it manages to keep him alive. <laughs> I think it was probably fucked. <laughs> well, you know, he did a lot of yoga. He, he did a lot I guess of that shit works. Fuck. I yeah. guess, you know... Mm-hmm. He lived a long time. Yeah, listen, One Strange Gringo going, is yeah. the name of his biopic. Yeah. Speaking of playing Picard's dad, people definitely compare the swivel chairs in the Cybersyn office. They're so full of shit when they said that wasn't inspired by Star Trek. Bull fucking mm. shit. That is the Enterprise Bridge. Bullshit. They did that on purpose. <laughs> That's the Enterprise mm-hmm. Bridge. The designers claim that the style was not influenced by science fiction. That's in Cybernetic Revolutionary. Yeah, they just didn't want to get sued. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I seem to remember reading that in Cybernetic Revolutionaries. They say it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's different. It's hard to imagine. And I guess there's a certain degree to which, like, all that stuff flows out of the Bauhaus. Mm. Well, hold on. Let me quote the wiki for a second. Mm-hmm. It was furnished with seven swivel chairs, parentheses, considered the best for creativity, with buttons, which were designed to control several large screens that could protect the data and other panels with status information, although these were of limited functionality as they could only show pre-prepared graphs. Oh. This consisted of slides. That idea came specifically out of Beer's fascination with operations rooms in World War II. Yeah. Okay. And I think that that probably was a common reference for both, right. both groups. Yeah. That actually makes a lot of sense. Perhaps there's a common ancestor thing here. Yeah. He wanted it to be like Winston Churchill's war room, sort of. Yeah. But for the entirety of Chile. The reason for this whole operations room thing in the sort of cybernetics is that, like, you want to have the sort of management scenario be this very high variety situation where you've got, like, plenty of data, you've got collaboration between people and such. So, like, he saw that work in the war rooms in Britain right in World War II, where they just had shitloads of people and data just converging in one place and mixing together in a blender, and viability falls out the back of that. That's kind of why you have those swivel chairs all facing each other and all these displays and shit. There was also a lot of intention that went into the design of the interface in terms of like Mm -hmm. creating an interface that would be sufficiently simple that you could get the relevant information. Because Beer has this really strong emphasis on like management should not be overloaded with data because that's not going to be effective at all. That goes along with the autonomy argument, Mm -hmm. right? Like that the operational units unit one should do most of the thinking and working themselves and the managers should just be there for like direction correction that kind of stuff the cybersyn operations room 
is really an interesting example of like user interface design in that sense because it's very much the opposite of like your sort of like standard science fiction operations room. I'm not speaking about Star Trek here, but other science fiction where it's like you've got the massive screens with like 200 different little video feeds on them and there's data scrolling down everywhere. That's like absolutely not the sort of thing that Beer would have advocated. Right. This ties in with the autonomy thing that like one of the sort of basic principles here is that the autonomous subunits should manage themselves and then only really send alert signals upwards or send kind of stabilization signals upwards for stuff that they can't handle essentially, right? Or, or they send their basic reporting. And this is very much in contrast with what you would expect, right? Like when you see this operations room or these kind of things, you would think it's going to be this like top-down thing where the AI algorithm issues instructions to the firms or to the, to the departments and tells them what to do. That's not what's going on in Beer's modeling. What's instead happening is that the firms and the like sectors of the economy are figuring themselves out and are coordinating dynamically directly with each other and kind of generating plans and kind of vetoing each other's plans. Firm A says, we intend to produce this much steel this month. And then firm B says, well, hold on, we need a bit more than that. And then firm C pipes up and says, oh, well, actually, our project got cancelled so you can have our allocation and all those kind of things. So the, the control room and the like centralized components are there to help the lower levels assist themselves not to issue instructions, right? The ideal for social planning would be to increase association mm -hmm. across the board of workers. Yeah, you kind of deeply interconnect all the systems. You kind of prefer for them to sort it out on their own level. And if they can't, they put up a red flag saying we need help from an AI higher up the hierarchy. And only then does the higher level of management step in and use its like computational power to assist them with figuring out the problem. But in general, all the channels should be quiet. Like everything should be like humming along local autonomy, local intelligence until things go wrong. And then you get the higher coordination functions step in. There do need to be like broader, like deeper objectives beyond like what each sector kind of like wants to do. Yeah. I mean, the way that Cybersyn was even implemented was to break this like CIA backed strike mm -hmm. by the transport industry in Chile. Right. That's the other side of the equation, right, where you have fairly limited information flowing upwards, like only enough that's required for coordination. But the information that's flowing downwards is kind of policy. And like this is where Allende's whole thing of like, oh, you know, where Beer was explaining the whole five levels of the viable system to him, and he got to level five, and Allende was like, ah, that's the people, right? That The people set policy. So it's, it's this kind of democratic loop where lower levels of the system are reporting upwards, and that's getting integrated into planning, and the plans flow downwards. And again, you might think that would go towards a kind of authoritarian top-down control, but the kind of way it's all laid out in this kind of reciprocal feedback loop is more like the society tuning itself, in a round and a roundabout kind of way, rather than a sort of central god king issuing demands. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Beer was kind of haunted by accusations of this kind of shit, even around the time, right? Like, even as they were implementing this stuff in Chile, there was shit coming out in the British press of like, oh, look at this, like, fucking Skynet AI tyranny that's, like, being implemented. He spent the later part of his career fighting that off, you know? I mean, that's just transparent horse shit. Like, they literally <laughs> administered neoliberalism at the barrel of a gun. Really? Yeah, totally. Like, fuck you. Yeah, they funded a fascist coup. Yeah, this was before the coup, but, like, those accusations continued after the coup. It's just transparent bullshitting. Literally, like, people disappeared. Like, there's women going around the desert trying to find the bones of their yep. dead husbands. All that so that you can have, like, some Chicago boy fuckheads make sure that they pay their debts or whatever bullshit. I feel like that sort of comes out of, like, a conflation between, like, beer cybernetics and, like, cybernetics that was popular in the United States and the cybernetics that mm -hmm. briefly existed in the Soviet Union. Like, both were top-down heavy, both coming out of, like, sort of military-industrial complex background or, like, deteriorating Soviet bureaucracy background. That so loops us back around to a point that I think was made earlier in the cybernetic brain where Pickering really highlights there was, like, two different cybernetics, right? There was the American cybernetics, which which does kind of rhyme with that vision of, like, an austere science of command and control. But then British cybernetics was very much this kind of, like, thing that was more rooted in brain science and more concerned with how complex systems like autonomous brains and such, how they adapt to their environments. And it was the, the conclusion they came to was that top-down control is actually impossible because of this, like, variety problem, because of Ashby's Law, that the kind of ultra-centralized uh, AI dictatorship or whatever the kind of uh, American cybernetics suggests is actually kind of ontologically impossible, that, like, the world is so explosively various, like, there's such complexity in it that you can't model it fully, 
And the best you can ever hope for is to design systems that are able to navigate dynamically and cope with complexity and never to really dominate it. On the one hand, you have something that leans towards the science of domination. And on the other hand, you have this other sort of side of it that's saying that domination is actually impossible, like at, at its limit, like ontologically. That's another like aspect of this that seems really useful is like the whole, was it like the black box thing? Mm-hmm, the black box stuff, yeah. Where, yeah, you're basically admitting there's like factors of like unknowability. Yeah. That seems like a big problem, like with the various um, sort of production drives that ended up like on the back half leading to like famines in the ussr and china mm-hmm. it was this unshakable faith that collectivization in and of itself would lead to like an increase in production mm-hmm. and that if that doesn't happen it's either because like the peasants are tricking you or <laughs> the local party officials are being too weak yeah. in terms of how they implement the program as opposed to just kind of like understanding there's a certain amount of like heterogeneity and there's a certain amount of like unknowability in terms of the way that things like interact mm-hmm. like on the ground and trying to make like adjustments based on that you know what yeah I mean? totally and that's that's why and why you need the autonomy right is that like ultimately if you're faced with a universe of black boxes all you can really do is trust that internally they're doing the right thing and then tweak their inputs and outputs a little bit to like guide them towards the right thing you can't know the inside of the thing really you, you can't know everything in detail so you have to do this like adaptive navigation is still persistent with us like the fantasy of like total domination the kind of god kings ruling over stuff and like the total knowability you know the the kind of newtonian cartesian model of like the ultimate mind knowing everything and controlling everything is fucking horseshit like absolute fucking horseshit and cybernetics proves it you need more than 10 neurons to think about 10 neurons right like there's an explosion of variety that is you cannot really reduce it in that kind of way the example for the black box thing that came up in in our episode was that like i mean the, the doorknob in this room is a black box the computer in front of me is a black box effectively i don't know how any of these fucking things work but i as an adaptive brain navigate the world that is full of these things And so knowledge and, like, totalizing knowledge is really not that useful and isn't even possible. Like, you have to do adaptive navigation. Like, that's what is required in conditions of hypercomplexity. Right. And that's why you need that autonomy, right? Yeah, I feel like it's also particularly useful when, like, dealing with problems in Marxism. Like, there's a continuing (laughs) debate around, like, the labor theory of value, in particular how labor translates to value. And, you know, there's just so much effort being put into it, so many long-ass books just being put out, so much time wasted on the subject when, you know, we can ultimately just say, you know, it happens you know it's really a black box how it happens mm. well here's the thing like i was gonna say like the fact is like the faith the the faith that people have in markets right now is basically a religion it's not rational so if you, you could come up with like a, a mathematical formula that could tie marx's explanation of how the value is imbued somehow directly into the commodity and that's how it gets on the market you could make that and you could like prove it like in black and white and people just go no it's not yeah you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it wouldn't it wouldn't change anything honestly i think i feel like it's kind of a bullshit debate because like the way i've always understood it is like value is kind of like a center of gravity around which prices fluctuate yeah so there's no like direct like one-to-one connection i've never understood like why that is even like <laughs> a debate anyway sorry what you're saying about the one-to-one debate i mean that is the right like marxist like position but political economy demands predictive theories of price. So people keep trying to shoehorn Marx into that kind of thing. People systematically distort Marx for ideological reasons. And when these people try to make influences on institutions, they inevitably repeat all the same bourgeois bullshit. So I don't know. I, I think it's helpful to understand you know, specific things that like will matter at some point, mm-hmm. like when it comes to value theory. Like, I understand why people don't think value theory is important, but what I don't understand is why they call themselves Marxists. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, like, obviously, you want to try and open black boxes and find, you want to learn as much mm-hmm. as you possibly can to find out about everything. But, right. like, the fact is, human consciousness is finite. Yeah. So, so there's always going to be elements that are beyond our understanding, and you have to navigate through those things. You know? I built a Python model. I have a Python model of it. Yeah, it's, I, it's not. This isn't like beyond the limits of cognition. Uh-huh. It's something that like an overly complex system onto itself, whereas capital itself, like to understand capital, it's an overly complex system. It's something that's beyond simple like a complex system like a computer or like mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So you can't. If you spend, like, a lot of time on these, like, smaller issues, like these smaller little black box things, you're not going to be able to understand the overarching overarching dynamics of capital. 
if you continually just focus on these small mm. little pieces. Because it's the it's the interactions of the boxes that produces emergent behavior, and like the emergent behavior might not be present in any of the details that you yeah. find inside the black boxes. I feel like value theory, though, is very much on the lower end of complexity and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. scheme. Sure. And it is a thing that, like, we can formalize. Like, it's just... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's complicated, but, like, it's definitely within our capacity to do. That does not mean that we're going to come up with a predictive model of how value in any given instance is going to produce a price on the market that will result in a sale. Yeah, precisely. That is too complex. Yeah. That's not really the debate. Yeah. So it, it like, you know, it's, it's okay. Right. But that's exactly right. The debate is framed this way, but if you basically understand Marx, that's not his mm-hmm. question. That's mm-hmm. not his research yeah. question. Right. So there is a way which we can think about complexity in that regard productively yeah, it lines up pretty well with the way that Marx approached the value-price relationship <laughs> in, in reality. Yeah. yeah, like with relatively simple model of value dynamics, you plug that into a lot of the more complex models that you get in computer modeling. Because, yeah, economy, very complicated, you know, big emergent system. But when like a salaried programmer or engineer comes across a problem like that, they don't just throw up their hands and pray to Walter Benjamin, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, like, treat it as a practical problem. They make it tractable. They try to solve it. That's why they make six figures. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, they have a lot of tools for this. I think for the sake of clarity, I think what we're sort of getting to here is that even if the kind of position and velocity of everything in the universe is unknowable, you can still do good enough modeling. That is actually the core concept in cybernetics is that you can create models that are good enough at fitting a given situation, even if the situation itself is unknowably complex. So it's, it's not like throwing our hands up and saying, oh, yeah, the world is too complex, therefore we can never do anything in it. Like instead, Beer does have this kind of engineer's mindset of, of being like, no, things can be made tractable. You just have to always keep in mind that you're not doing the kind of classic thing of like knowing everything. Well, that is the capitalist ideology, though. It's, oh, every, the society's too complex, so we need these magical tools that mm. will sort everything out for us, and this invisible hand will... That is like the, the core of like their belief, and it's, you know... Yeah. It is increasingly a death cult. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. But is there a problem models, or is it like their models? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think we've, we've kind of had this conversation on GIU once or twice before, I think especially in the People's Republic of Walmart right. uh, episode. And mm-hmm. um, I think what's really going on there is that Hayek had a complexity-oriented argument about the superiority of the market, and people kind of take that as the last word in justifying capitalism. But As if the price signal is going so great. <laughs> And I think the mistake there is that Hayek's understanding of complexity was, one, used specifically to defend an Austrian economic position, and two, it's quite limited compared to our understanding of complexity and material relationships today. This complexity stuff is not going to give you the justification of capitalism many market ideologues want. And in fact, like, I would absolutely agree with this idea that it feeds into a death cult mentality because there is a a way in which it becomes theological, um, especially in Austrian economics. That's it for this week. Special thanks to Shane Kilkelly and Kyle Thompson for coming on. Remember, Swampside Chats is part of the Emancipation Network. And our comrade podcasts, that is General Intellect Unit and From Alpha to Omega, can be found at emancipation.network. If you'd like to support Swampside Chats, visit us at patreon.com slash swampsidechats and sign up for whatever tier works for you. A free way to help is to go to your podcatcher of choice and give us a five-star review. That is, unless your podcatcher of choice is Apple Podcasts, because we're still not on there.
Stay tuned for the second half of this conversation and some more custom episodes. Thanks to Bonaparte's patrons, Matrix Operations, and to Kun Olumist for this double episode. Until next time, keep your boots clean.